This is AMDA on the go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovation in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA on the go is a presentation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. The kickoff meeting will be held on Thursday, May 20th. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for AMDA on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to AMDA on the Go. This podcast focuses on barriers to post-acute and long-term care transitions for those with opiate and substance use disorders. Dr. Richard Juman, the Team Health National Director of Psychology Services and a past AMDA on the go guest, authored a recent article entitled, Skilled Nursing Weighs Potential Patient Population, which very nicely sets the stage for today's discussion. As the skilled nursing facility or SNF setting continues to care for more and more medically complex patients, it has had to change and adapt its scope of care in order to accommodate them. Dr. Juman believes that the care of those with substance use disorders or SUDs may be next on that list. And the SNF may have to step up and care for those that they have little history caring for in the past. He discusses the challenges of a younger, stronger and more ambulatory population the effort to get beyond the stigma that accompany SUDs, the ability to be an asset in a national strategy of treating SUDs, the desire to fill beds, meet budgets, and create a sorely needed environment for care and recovery. He discusses screening, understanding opioid prescribing practices, alternatives for pain management. Most importantly, he writes about a change in culture, language, and collaboration. In essence, the ability to rise to the occasion. Can we facilitate SNF care for those with substance use disorder? Can the SNF rise to the occasion? Will the acute setting be a willing partner? Where do we start? Well, a poster by University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine medical student Meredith Yang and her co-authors, Dr. Kimberly Biting and Dr. Stacey Levine, entitled Hospital to Nursing Home Transitions of Care for Older Adults with Opioid Use Disorders, a needs assessment that was presented at the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine 2021 annual conference, clues us in on how we can address that transition and facilitate care for those with substance use disorder. And we are fortunate to have Ms. Yang and Dr. Biting with us here now to discuss their work. Meredith Yang is a second-year medical student at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Her pathway to medicine has included research experience in South Africa and China and a post-baccalaureate program in Baltimore. Family experiences and public health work helped her find her niche in medicine after she graduated Williams College in 2014. 
And Dr. Kimberly Biting is an advanced research fellow in the section of geriatrics and palliative medicine at the University of Chicago. And she currently is doing research in opiate use disorders in older adults with funding through the TL1 postdoctoral program in clinical research and medical informatics. Ms. Yang and Dr. Biting, it is my pleasure to welcome you to AMDA on the go. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Ms. Yang, I typically like to start with somewhat of a historical framework to set the tone for our discussion. As the former chair for the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine Transitions of Care Committee, I was thrilled to see your abstract. The society welcomes medical student interest for which we laud you, but I, and I'm sure others, immediately wondered how you became interested in this topic, the barriers to transitions for those with substance and opiate use disorders, enough so to want to do a project. What did you learn from the few studies available on the subject? Tell us about the University of Chicago Pritzker Medical School summer opportunity that you took advantage of, but most of all, lead us through the evolution of your project. For sure. Thank you. Um, so it really came um, from a personal interest and a good mentor that has um, sort of the same objective as mine, I believe. Um, but, you know, kind of the year before medical school, I worked as an EMT at a volunteer fire station in Baltimore County in Pikesville, which is where uh, near where I did my um, postback program. Um, I, I went weekly and then actually ended up staying for part of the summer because I liked it so much. And honestly, many of the calls uh, that we responded to were from nursing homes um, to transport patients to the hospital. Um, and through that, I saw many, many different types of facilities, um, some great, some good, um, some not so great, um, all over Baltimore County. Um, and kind of that experience combined with, uh, you know, talking with the paramedics and the county firemen, I really began to feel like um, SNFs, as they call it, are kind of this hidden segment of the of the community. I always had lots of questions after a call, like why why was it this way or why that? But it seemed like um, it seemed like the response was that this is just the way it is. Um, I'm Chinese American, um, and so uh, personally, I come from a family that really values elders, um, as I'm sure many other families do. Um, and I was raised by my grandparents and I always wanted to hear what they had to say. Um, I wanted the best for them. I just couldn't believe that this was, you know, as I was coming in and, you know, seeing all the nursing homes, just like, um, you know, how the, this is, that this was how the U.S., one of the most foremost advanced countries, um, especially in medicine, institutionalized the elderly. Um, but anyways, at the Pritzker School of Medicine, we have this fantastic opportunity called the Summer Research Program between our first and second year. It really structures our uh, summer um, to do research that is also funded. Um, so we get a list of kind of uh, faculty in the uh, medical school that, um, you know, we can kind of explore what research they're involved in. Um, I saw Dr. Levine's name. I saw that she was really involved in local nursing homes, had done research in this area before. So I reached out to her and just sat down with her. Um, I told her I was really interested in quality improvement, social medicine, health disparities, nursing homes. I told her about my experience as an EMT, um, having responded to also, um, you know, seeing a lot of drug overdoses in, uh, around in Baltimore County. And it was kind of really a natural conversation. 
uh, I thought at least. <laughs> she told me she was having trouble placing patients in nursing homes with histories of substance use. Um, I was personally looking to do a long-term project that I could really explore and get involved directly with the local community throughout my time at, in Chicago. Um, I was new to the city. I really wanted to dive in somewhere. Um, and she she also, and with that, she tapped um, Dr. Bating, Kimberly, and um, who was also her fellow at the time, who was already doing opioid use disorder and elderly work, and we went from there. And um, I honestly couldn't have asked for better mentors and better models to emulate. Wow, what a what a great story and kudos to Dr. Levine for recognizing the value that you could bring to um, to this troubling uh, equation. Um, but let's let's keep going as a segue to the to to the first question. You know, I'm interested in learning about the details of your project. You know, you had to interview a number of key stakeholders, both from the hospital side and the skilled nursing side. You had to work with an institutional review board. You developed a needs assessment, conducted statistical analyses, and utilized quality assessment tools. And frankly, these are these are concepts that are foreign to many of my colleagues, um, but they are so important in today's value-based world. You know, regardless, there seem to be a lot of steps. Uh, and for someone in medical school, you know, committed to a summer program, you know, tell us about the process and 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 tell us about your findings. For sure. Um, so hats off to Kimberly, Dr. Bating for heading the IRB process. Couldn't have done it without her. Um, but yeah, we we sat down, started off writing the needs assessment, and then kind of blended it with the project proposal for the IRB there. Um, we sat down, kind of just like, you know, started with the question, um, what do we want to know from these facilities? Um, and what do we want to know from the patient side of the project? Um, and those were kind of just the two really basic questions that we kind of went from. Methods wise, um, Kimberly and I had both done qualitative research before. We both had a passion for it. So that felt that, that felt to me that it fit really well. Um, COVID hit. <laughs> Yeah. in the spring of last year uh, here at least and then we weren't sure if this was actually going to be feasible both Kimberly and Dr. Levine were basically dealing with an outbreak as I'm sure a lot of physicians in the country were and then so there was a moment I wasn't sure if I um, should try to do um, the project but thankfully things got better uh, or that they you know worked really hard to make this possible for me so I really appreciate that um, but Dr. Levine um, helped us recruit participants through a local network of nursing homes that she was familiar with, uh, mostly in Illinois, sent out emails, eventually talked to staff from 15 different facilities, um, all recorded through Zoom. And then, you know, we talked to um, DONs, administrators, nurses. Um, I transcribed each of them with Microsoft Word. <laughs> Hats off to Kimberly again for this tip. Uh, there's a transcribe button on Microsoft Word. And um, yeah, you know, one by one, we coded the interviews in a software called NVivo. Um, we were, so some of the programs that we uh, interviewed had um, specific, uh, what we call formal programs for patients with substance use. And so we kind of divided the data in that, you know, a group of nursing homes who didn't really accept these patients and group of nursing homes who um, mm. were more familiar with this type. And then we were able to kind of compare and contrast um, our results and findings from there. Um, and then as to the quality improvement uh, tools, uh, another 
person I have to credit is uh, Dr. Aurora, who runs the summer research program. She really advised to interview physicians and social work at our hospital here to kind of get the inpatient side of this, um, the process before the transition um, to the nursing home. Uh, she, you know, to develop sort of a process map, kind of map the ways or, you know, what, what are the different steps that a patient might have to go through in order to be discharged. Um, and yeah, she told me about a fishbone diagram. And so I really used that to kind of organize my findings. Um, and yeah, what we found is that it's incredibly difficult to try to place a patient with a substance use disorder in a nursing home, as probably many people know listening to this podcast. Um, I remember a comment from a social worker at the hospital who said um, she'd, quote, trade a hospice patient for a patient with substance use any day. Mm. Um, you know, uh, wow. and then another kind of another conversation I remember is that um, a lot of them commented that or social work commented that, you know, some of the worst nursing home, some of the, you know, um, as quote unquote worst nursing homes will take them, but none of the good ones will. Um, and as to the nursing home side, as my interview, um, as my interviews proceeded through the summer, um, it was really multifaceted in terms of reasons to not accepting these patients. Um, at first, I think I really zeroed in on the stigma, which is definitely there, right? The, the stigma that, um, you know, they, we, they just didn't want to, you know, so I definitely heard uh, people who just didn't want to deal with this type of population or, you know, didn't, it's not their interest, so to say. Um, and then gradually I realized um, on top of that stigma, the reality is that there just isn't enough resources in nursing homes to care for these patients. Mm. Um, with the staffing ratios around the, you know, if you want to do um, induct someone into Suboxone, you would need around the clock monitoring. Um, there's some really real time, uh, not time, just real, very real constraints in the treatment of these patients. Um, and so I think I, I really had to, to learn that as someone outside of this system. Um, oftentimes nursing staff aren't trained in this type of care. You know, many commented to me that they just hadn't learned about addiction and substance use in school. It was only when they started working at the nursing home that they started to learn on the ground about it. Sometimes the nursing home was the first time somebody would be exposed to patients with this kind of medical history. Um, you know, other another nursing home I talked to that said that um, their policy for an overdose protocol for um, they they thought that naloxone was something that wasn't readily accessible at the nursing home, and so and that a physician order was necessary for it. Wow. So calling 911 was basically their primary overdose protocol. Um, and I was kind of surprised, I definitely surprised by that. But as the research proceeded, um, I understood that this is just um, an indication of the sheer variability from facility to facility. Um, different, you know, admission policies uh, varied widely, what one facility will take versus what another won't, just locally across Chicago. Um, I mean, Chicago probably, uh, as with many cities in the U.S., is um, very siphoned to regions, I feel, and so a lot of the nursing home population reflects the community that it sits in. Um, 
there were some that had a licensed clinical social worker who came by regularly or even a certified alcohol and drug addiction counselor at one. Um, that was definitely a unique one um, that I really like to learn from, but they said um, this CADC, so to say, managed all the methadone and suboxone prescriptions for the patients, held on to them for, uh, for them, talked to the patients whenever they needed to. Um, but this was, you know, one of all, one of the 15 that I spoke to. Um, and some facilities even held AA meetings for the residents um, prior to COVID, of course. Um, yeah, and so the other, uh, and I guess one more finding to kind of make sure to talk about is that um, what I what I found interesting, or that what what we found interesting was that many places require that a patient's Methadone or Suboxone had to be self-administered, meaning that the patient needed to be able to self-administer their medication in order to be admitted to, admitted into the facility in the first place. Um, and so their medication would have to be placed in what they called a double lockbox inside the residence room. So the nurses have the key to the outside box and the resident has the key to the inside box. Wow. Um, and I, I guess when they were telling me, I, I kind of just... Um, you know, wrote that down, it seems strange. And then as we were discussing at our research and, uh, you know, at one of our research meetings, Dr. Levine and Dr. Bating uh, both, you know, kind of commented that this seemed impractical for somebody who might be admitted to the nursing home, right? Who might not have the physical um, dexterity to be manipulating a key for their medication. And it just seemed like an unnecessary sort of obstacle to get the medication that they needed for, um, for a very real diagnosis. Um, and then the, they would also, uh, uh, most of the nursing homes we talked to preferred to admit patients who were already set up with methadone clinics. And so they would need to arrange an escort and a transportation to arrange the patient to go to the clinic three or four times a week if they needed. And some of the um, staff that I talked to, you know, uh, described to me that this posed extra costs that they would have to cover, and these are all factors that would weigh into whether or not someone would be admitted into their facility. And so, um, and then just the additional cost of having, you know, a chaperone for that process. Um, and so it really just, it, it seemed to go in an infinite, myriad number of ways in which um, this would complicate their care. Um, yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious uh, what what you think um, or what uh, your experience in this field is. I, um, my experience is very similar to yours, and you know, you have uh, two wonderful mentors who are very well versed in what is happening in our society. But you know, what I think the big picture takeaways: two things. One, um, you've experienced the variability that. Um, that can go on in healthcare. And when you have high variability, you have low quality and you have experienced that. But the other thing I think you've experienced um, is uh, that while we have been talking about the disparities that in, in, are involved in healthcare today that COVID-19 brought out um, and made very apparent where we already knew what was happening, you found disparities in the skilled nursing setting and disparate views on what a skilled nursing facility could do and identifications of 
poor facilities and not so poor facilities. So you've learned a lot about quality and about disparity. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. We are speaking with medical student Meredith Yang and Dr. Kimberly Biting about transition challenges and substance use disorder in post-acute and long-term care. Um, so Ms. Yang, continuing our, our conversation, a central motivation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine has always been, what can we teach or discuss today that can be put into action uh, tomorrow? Uh, I'd like to call our, our providers who are in the field, our, our Joe Amdas in the trenches. You have very, very nicely described a problem, a big problem that is afflicting the healthcare system, i.e., you know, creating a transitions pathway for those afflicted with substance use disorders. You've identified the players and you have very, very well described the barriers. So, um, you know, what steps can facilities, organizations, or systems at a whole take, you know, even baby steps, or think about today in order to facilitate these types of transitions? You know, for example, in January of this year, Health and Human Services removed the X waiver requirement for buprenorphine that, uh, you know, will that help? Or what about having on-site medication-assisted uh, treatment programs, uh, like for methadone, as you described, or other low-hanging fruit that can be considered and put in place to create safe and effective transitions for this unique population? And, you know, I, I welcome Dr. Biting's thoughts as well. Right. So, you know, when you say low hanging fruit, one of the first things that came to my mind is sort of this um, idea of like writing this population to, into existence. Um, I think a lot of the narrative around this, uh, you know, the opioid overdose panda, uh, epidemic, um, you don't really hear about the geriatric population or the new geriatric population, I guess. Um, and so I think one of the low-hanging fruit is kind of awareness. Mm. Um, the other one that I could think of is that um, there were a few, um, you know, when, when we did discuss regulation uh, in my, you know, lo whether, whether state or federal, um, they, the 
administrators or staff would point me to, you know, Illinois state code about nursing home management. And I would look that up and there was no specific men mention of the exact, uh, of the exact code that they referred me to. There was no specific mention um, of how exactly patients with substance use disorders should be treated. Um, in fact, the regulatory protocol regulates the provision of services to persons with, um, quote, serious mental illnesses, which some facilities just took to apply to patients with substance use disorders. Yes. Um, while I certainly understand there's an overlap between the two, for me, it felt like uh, there could, I, I was surprised that there, it felt like there could still be room to address this group in the nursing home population more specifically. Mm. Um, it seemed like it, in every in every conversation, it had either you know administrators had um, come upon these patients through admission or through their facility. It, it seemed to touch every single one of my interviews. Um, we weren't just interviewing people, uh, you know, nursing homes that accepted um, these patients. And yeah, I think maybe one of the longer term steps on the local level is just to write out a few standard guidelines for this population. Um, and hopefully, I, I, yeah, I, I must defer to Dr. Bating on kind of what the medical community would do. Well, I mean, Meredith has said it incredibly well. Um, so I, you know, I, and I completely agree with everything she said. I think that, um, in addition, um, as you mentioned, it's going to become a lot easier to do on-site medication-assisted treatment or for medications for opioid use disorders, um, particularly for buprenorphine-containing products, which um, are like buprenorphine naloxone or suboxone, because of the recent elimination of the requirement of the X waiver um, that you had mentioned. Um, so I think one of the big low-hanging fruits in that instance, which, you know, particularly as we're talking about nursing homes, but just, you know, in medicine in general, is education on how to, you know, use this medication appropriately and effectively for the evidence-based treatment of these patients. So, um, um, I think it's imperative to be able to disseminate easy to access um, training on the use of buprenorphine containing products to skilled nursing facilities, potentially through virtual platforms like the ECHO educational model. Um, and then along with that training, um, I know Meredith had mentioned it before, is, is um, in these facilities, access to naloxone can be very variable and then um, knowledge around the use of naloxone can be variable as well. So I think um, including a component of overdose um, recognition, response, and naloxone administration is a key part of the education. Um, and that should be something that should be offered to all nursing home facilities and especially I think with uh, providers and general, um, I would say providers um, familiarity with um, online educational platforms in the context of the pandemic. Um, it may be some very easy low hanging fruit to disseminate um, standardized and evidence based education in this area to nursing home providers, um, including physicians and advanced practice providers and nurses and CNAs, um, you know, uh, across the city and the country. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, Meredith had also mentioned um, some 
care guidelines, some standardized care guidelines, which I think is really important to address uh, the variability that we experience, you know, in, in individual facilities sort of attacking this, this, um, this care approach from different angles um, is on a wider scale, it would be very likely well received to develop even national guidelines on the care of these individuals um, from a society backed perspective, you know, guidelines um, that are in line with our, you know, best practice um, nursing home care um, or things like that. So I think that's, you know, blue sky a little bit, um, but also incredibly important in advocating for, for this patient population. Uh Maybe blue sky, but it's it very much sounds like a nicely clear sky to uh, to be considering. So, um, wow, wow, Miss um, Yang and Dr. Bating, you know, it has has become customary in the time we've remaining. I typically like to be somewhat provocative with my guests, but definitely not too much. Um, in the state of Massachusetts, my state. We do have skilled nursing facilities that are registered as substance use disorder facilities and are utilized largely for patients with uh, substance use disorders who require interventions like, like long-term antibiotics for significant infections, for example. They have specialized counselors on site who are overseen by the state director of addictions. The facilities and their personnel are under great stress, however, Overdoses on site are not uncommon, and they are challenged by surveyors uh, and deficiencies with a, always the overarching threat of closure or other punitive measures. But, you know, they often are the only game in town to take on these, um, these medically complex folks. So, Here's the question, you know, is the idea of a seamless and effective transitions of care process for, uh, for substance uh, use disorder um, folks a, a reality today? Or is there a much bigger picture that needs to be um, addressed before we can envision this alignment that you, Ms. Ying, have talked so eloquently about um, in a system that you know that you and Dr. Bating and Dr. Levine can envision, um, I can certainly start off with this one. So, I mean, I think it's a very interesting question that you're posing. Um, I think this question can be sort of asked even as a whole more generally regarding the oversight and management of skilled nursing facilities um, in the U.S. Because I think that. While some skilled nursing facilities do not have the same fraction of substance use disorder patients as other facilities, um, all you know, skilled nursing facilities to some extent know the stress of staffing shortages and patient care deficiencies um, to various levels, which may be exacerbated in um, you know, a more complex population, but um, you know, are not foreign to, I think, any skilled nursing facility in the U.S. Um, and certainly, certainly sort of the fact that I think our skilled nursing facilities um, do not have a lot of, like, flexibility in times of stress has been mm -hmm. 
laid bare in the pandemic this year, you know, if, if we're talking about recent experiences. So I think that the issue of advocating for better funding and staffing and oversight, not only for the management of our nursing homes, but really advocating for our staff there who want to do the best job possible, but sometimes don't have the resources. And then the residents who live there, I think that is something that we always need to be able to be doing. Um, you know, our responsibility as caretakers for our patients or that we have to care for them, you know, at the one-on-one -on -one level, but also at the systems level. Um, but I don't think that, I don't, I don't think it's realistic to say that can happen before we tackle the, the specific problem of taking care of um, our patients with substance use disorders because, um, it has to happen in, in parallel because patients with substance use disorders, it's sort of like a diagnosis like diabetes or hypertension. Um, and we know how to manage diabetes and hypertension well and do it all the time in the nursing homes. And we know how to manage substance use disorders well, um, but it's an area that we can continue to improve on in our skilled nursing facilities. So I think that you know we can do the work to improve our quality of care and nursing facilities for patients with substance and opioid use disorders, but we also do have to continue to advocate for our facilities as a whole because, you know, it really is important, I think, as a society, as Meredith said, what we, you know, how we take care of our elders and respect our elders, and I think that we can always be better, um, and I think so. So that work, I think, is drives us particularly in this instance, but, you know, um, drives us in our care for patients in general at our nursing homes. Part of what I got from doing this research is that you're, yes, we are advocating for patients with substance use, but what I really think Dr. Levine and Dr. Bating are advocating is just like manage, like optimizing care for patients in nursing homes, right? Like if this is what they're seeing, they're, they're wanting to optimize and make their care the best that it can be because it's what, it's, it's patient outcomes that matter. And, um, to, yeah, to, I, I don't know. I, I really respect that. And, um, I feel that this is an issue that is clouded by a lot of societal perceptions of substance use. You know, um, when I, in my interviews, you know, there were a lot of misconceptions or, you know, they, one person called it a forbidden fruit topic. You know, it was things like, it's like, why aren't we talking about this? You know, why um, we should be teaching it in medical school if this is what we're seeing on, on a day-to-day -day basis in the emergency rooms. Um, and that, you know, that's, it's just, is, 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 are we gonna look back on this and think that this was, um, I think I remember an article I had read that had said earlier in the pandemic for HIV and AIDS, many nursing homes also didn't, want to accept them you know are we going to be looking back on that on this uh, with that perspective just wishing we had done more history does repeat itself doesn't it um, I think the value that I take away from this discussion is that uh, the hallmark of a fantastic teacher is the willingness to learn from the student and I think that we have seen that today um, what a privilege to speak with and learn from University of Chicago Pritzker medical student uh, Meredith Yang. 
and geriatric and uh, palliative medicine um, a physician through the University of Chicago, Dr. Kimberly Bating. Miss um, Yang and, and Dr. Bating, thank you so much for spending your time with AMDA on the go. Thank you for thank having you. us. Yeah. References for this podcast can be found at paltc.org backslash podcast. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for this innovation podcast that we call AMDA on the go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex, A-P-E-X, dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.